Welcome to A Question of Ethics, a conversation on the ethical issues courts face today. I'm Pete Kiefer, and in this episode, we'll be continuing our discussion on diversity, equity, and inclusion, DEI, and NACOM's commitment to helping provide equal justice. This session was recorded after the Ethics Subcommittee conference call on April 28, 2022. The questions the group explored include, does focusing on diversity, equity, and inclusion policies and programs conflict with the court's purpose to be a separate, independent, and impartial forum for resolving disputes? How do courts keep political agendas out of its efforts to make court personnel and court processes equitable for all? How does implementing DEI policies and programs compare to affirmative action requirements? And how can courts today become more inclusive and accessible to those having business before it? Once again, before we delve into our conversation, let's review the relevant ethical canons from the NACAM Model Code of Conduct for Court Professionals. Canon 1.1, Performing Court Duties. A court professional faithfully carries out all appropriately assigned duties, striving at all times to perform the work diligently efficiently, equitably, thoroughly, courteously, honestly, openly, and within the scope of the court professional's authority. Canon 1.3, fairness. The court professional makes the court accessible and conducts his or her work without bias or prejudice. Canon 1.4, respect for others. A court professional treats litigants, co-workers, and all others interacting with the court with dignity, respect, and courtesy. Canon 4.1, political activity. Paraphrased, a court professional retains his or her right to vote, engages in political activity strictly as a private citizen in accordance with federal law, state law, local court rule, and the policy of the appropriate local governing authority participates in political activity only during non-court hours, uses only non-court resources, and never uses his or her position to politically influence others. We'll start with a two-part question. Does focusing on diversity, equity, and inclusion conflict with the court's purpose to be a separate, independent, and impartial forum for resolving disputes? And part two, how do courts keep political agendas out of its efforts to make court personnel and court processes equitable for all? When I read this, I Don Palermo, Judicial way. Administrator, I mean, Jefferson Parish Juvenile Court, Harvey, Louisiana. Activities, and we've been doing it for several years. So this is almost like an extension, just a different part of the work. How is it a different part? It's just bringing into focus your staff and things like that, that you might, you were considering just the juveniles before and the parties engaged in the system. Now we're looking in a broader perspective of everyone that's involved and how we need to include others and what we need to do differently. There's two different dimensions. Kent Pankey, senior planner, Supreme Court, Richmond, Virginia. I have no problems at all with, with DEI. I don't see where it would conflict at all to have good management practices involve diversity, equity, and inclusion. Maybe it gets a little more difficult to the extent that, you know, we have issues at the adjudicative level. Uh, if courts are perceived as somehow altering their behavior in a way that affects their neutrality, 
but um, if anything, I would think that being sensitive to DEI issues would be uh, perhaps more fair than historically courts have been accused of being. So, mm -hmm. yeah, that, I, I agree with Norman Meyer, retired clerk of court, courtleader.net contributor. DEI is part and parcel, and I'm I'm part of the group that, that would vote that you know it's it's important and it is part of of our ethical obligation to support diversity and inclusion, our administration, and to a great degree in, in, in the adjudicative side. And I, I, from my perspective, uh, yeah, uh, there probably has been, uh, and there probably will be, uh, perhaps more uh, criticisms leveled at the judiciary if. It, it becomes known widely, which personally I think would be a good thing, that we are supporting and uh, taking measures to make sure that our activities um, and administration in particular are diverse, that we are equitable and we are inclusive in all of our activities. And I think that's in the current political environment in the country, uh, if it hasn't happened, the, the points of view that are out there. And from my perspective, so what? How is that different than criticism in recent decades of activist judges or that were other positions and things that the courts have done in programs we have done in the past that get attacked by one group that has an agenda and wants to skew the judiciary in some fashion to their liking? I think if we adhere to our core principles, of which I think DEI is, is a part, I think we, we are taking the high road and we should stay be steadfast in that and, and stay the course. Let me give a very specific example of something Edwin Bell recently related. Sometimes in large volume calendars, judges hear cases where one side or both sides are represented by counsel. The court takes these represented cases first. As administrators, we often support this practice because it is usually more efficient and frees up attorneys who often have business in other courtrooms. But as Edwin pointed out, what kind of a message does this send to self-represented litigants who must wait until the attorneys have finished their business to be heard? Is this actually inequitable treatment? No, actually, Peter, Carl Tonis, court administrator, Second Judicial Circuit, Sioux Falls, South Dakota. First, because interpreters are expensive and the clock is running and the county gets crabby when they have to pay big interpreter bills. And so, I, you know, I. I wonder then, okay, what, what impression does that send that we take all the non-English speakers first and then the attorneys next? And then I happen to be sitting in a state where we back charge or we, we try to do cost recovery for indigent attorney appointments. And so we take the attorneys first to soften the financial blow on the, on the, the indigent parties. So mm -hmm. I, I think it, it, to some degree it comes down to we've got to make our case clearly as to why we handle things in, in particular ways and, and not necessarily have our process driven by appearance. I know that's sort of a bureaucrat's answer to say, well, it's more complicated than that, but I think it is more complicated than that. So I think we've just got to be clear in how and why we do things. Now, who would we be explaining this procedure to and how would we do it if we are looking at, for example, a group of self-represented litigants on a landlord-tenant docket who are waiting while business representatives, who are often attorneys, have their cases heard first? I think that'd be hard. I mean, you know, who do you reach out to? I guess yeah. you could put, you know, put, put stuff out uh, maybe through the, the media in some fashion or to 
Maybe there's some sort of landlord tenant association to get the word out of what's going on. I think I agree with Carl. I mean, it's, it's, it's a complicated situation and depending upon your court situation, what type of calendar you're talking about, there are competing considerations of, you know, cost, budget, you know, and interpreters, court appointed attorneys or attorneys who are in the courtroom A and they also have a calendar over in courtroom C uh, that they're going to go over to. And so you're trying to be efficient to, to juggle the needs of the court as well as the attorneys. I think that perhaps, a, you know, a solution would be maybe a more sophisticated calendaring system that you, you segregate your calendar uh, so that the people in the courtroom are either represented uh, and have a you know, nine o'clock, that's the represented folks. And at 9.30, you have the unrepresented people and you, you separate them so that if they're gonna have to wait anyway, why not set their time later? Uh, and so they show up, they get their hearing and then they get, go on their way. And so you solve your problem of the appearance of uh, inequitable treatment um, or actual inequitable treatment and, and do a better job uh, of doing that. So that, that if, if you have the means to do that, I would suggest that that might be a good way to solve that problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's a good, uh, a good practice uh, in general, segmenting your dockets uh, so you don't have the cattle call uh, situation. Uh, I think the order in which you do it uh, may depend a little bit on the case type as to whether it's a good or a bad thing to make the self-represented litigants wait as long as they do actually get heard on that day and don't have to come back at great hardship on another day. When I did work for the Access to Justice Commission here in Virginia, there were some comments to the effect that there are advantages for the self-represented litigants to wait and watch and perhaps learn a little bit about the procedure before they actually have to stand up and deal with their own case. Is this advice we would relate to the self-represented litigants while they're sitting in the courtroom? That we have arranged the calendar as an educational opportunity? Yeah, you know, Peter, I think your, your question about, okay, we need to make the case, but to whom do we make the case and how is a good one? Because, you know, for example, if we bring in a jury in the morning, you know, we'll bring in 40 or 60 people, depending on the level of the case. And then the defendant finally, I was going to say chickens out, but you know, mm-hmm. when, when you have a jury sitting downstairs, it's, it's a good way to impress upon the defendant and the parties. Okay. This is, this is it. This is when, you know, we use the phrase, roll the dice. This is, yeah. this is your dice roll. And it, it triggers settlements as we know, and, and plea deals. And the judge will typically go down in the morning if a case settles out that morning and pleads out that morning and explains to the jurors. Yeah, we called you in for a couple hours and, and, uh, it, it's not as if we don't value your time, but your presence here in the courthouse, even though you never saw the inside of a courtroom, really did serve a purpose. Now, I don't know how many jurors really swallow that when we've just ruined their work day for the morning. <laughs> yeah. But I, I think that's one example of, of one of those little steps we can maybe try to consistently take to explain ourselves to the public. You know, we also have a really curious, and edit this out if you want, of course, but we have this curious process here that I don't think a lot of courts have where we set all small claims cases for a default hearing about 30 days after they're filed. And some parties will come in and say, why did you set this for default? Uh, the other side is here with an answer. Now we got to come back for the trial. And we'll explain 90% of our cases default out or never answer. They choose not to pursue it any longer. So in 30 days, 90% of our small claims litigants get their final judgment or dismissal and they're done. We do have to call back that 10% for, the, for a small claims trial, but that's why we do it because the, it gives a really quick judgment for 
for the great majority the of our small claims markets. the Stacy Warby, state jury coordinator, Alaska court system, Anchorage, Alaska. It's taken quite differently than if we get a judge in a robe to come down and explain it. So perhaps uh, back, circling back to our original example, if at the beginning the judge has just a, a quick explainer of, hey, this is how we're taking the cases, this is our reasoning behind it, you might find it educational. Just a quick 30-second blurb even would be helpful and would be a good way to, uh, rather than having it posted somewhere, gets lost in all the information. <laughs> That, that I think you're right, Stacy. That does make a significant difference when somebody in a black robe stands in front of the room and and gives the explanation. That really does help. I know it's a sort of a psychological status thing, but I think you're exactly right. It makes a difference. Now, affirmative action has been in place since the 1960s, and addresses recruiting individuals from groups that have suffered discrimination. How does diversity, equity, and inclusion differ from affirmative action? I think that. <laughs> major difference is whether or not there's a quota. You have a target of number of positions, uh, specifically saying X number of, of Y types of positions, you know, we're going to reserve for this demographic or whatever ca category. Um, and I think that a DEI program doesn't necessarily focus on those, that target, but more than in general being, making sure that your practices for recruitment um, and retention mm -hmm. uh, and development of staff are uh, such that they attract and then uh, recruit and, and, and hire and retain a population of staff which do reflect maybe not this, you know within one percent or whatever, but you know at least reasonably close. And of course, how do you define that to the demographics and comp the, of the public you serve and the, and, the, and the population that you're recruiting from. And so um, I, I think that, yeah, there's some similarities in terms of, of the two things, but I, but I, I don't see them being the same uh, in that regard. Were all affirmative action programs quota-based? No, I don't think so, but it often gets tagged with that. Um, I think a lot of them were, uh, but uh, I, I, yeah, they, you know, if, if it's an affirmative action, which is basically just applying DEI principles and, and such, then they're, they're consonant, they're, they're the same. And so it, yeah, it's a matter of labeling at that point. I do think there's a difference in affirmative action if you are making a, a choice to prefer a minority or other can you know other whatever criteria you're looking for um, candidate over others with all other things being equal or if you get to actual quota where you you have to have a certain number uh, I think that's different from the broader spectrum of DEI concepts which is what Norman was, was getting at is that mm -hmm. Make sure your pool of applicants is large and that you're reaching out by different mechanisms to reach different audiences to ensure that you have a, a diverse pool. Um, make sure that once people are, you know, come into the organization, they're onboarded in a meaningful manner and they're made a part of uh, discussions and, and decision making that allows for people to show their strengths and value as part of, of teams that. <clears throat> But don't make them feel like they're tokens uh, mm -hmm. and not, not a meaningful part of the organization. Reaching out to communities that have been discriminated against is difficult. 
Often these communities are reticent to join institutions such as the courts. How much time and effort should we put into such outreach efforts? Well, I, mean, I got a couple of things that come to mind. One is, you know, why are they reticent? It's because there's a history in this country of discrimination exactly. in the criminal justice system against groups that have been called what it is, that they were oppressed and continue to be oppressed. And so of course they're reticent. They view the criminal justice system with suspicion. And why would they want to get involved with it, with an entity that they view as, as part of, of the system that has caused the, their group of people to be uh, oppressed in the past? So, okay, uh, yeah, sure, they're, they're reticent. Uh, that should be expected. And then the second, a couple other things is just because it's hard doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. And sure, it's hard in some instances, and it depends on your community. You might have a community that, that because of the history of where you are and what's happened in the past, there, it isn't hard. Whereas in other places, it might be really hard. So, I mean, you scale it to what the need is. And, and the, the final thing is, if you want to truly have a functioning justice system and courts that do represent your community, that gain the public trust and acceptance, uh, which is, I think, one of our principles that we have been you know, taught and learned and trying to apply for, for a long time. How are you going to get that that public trust without doing this sort of thing? It's part and parcel of what you should be doing. And yeah, if you have to do extra effort to do it, well, then I think it's incumbent upon you to get, to budget for it, to, to make a case to your funding authority that you need the resources to make this happen. And here's why. Uh, get the bench behind it and then go for it. But just because it's it's hard, I think it's just a, it's an excuse. I think you're dodging uh, your responsibilities. Can you give some examples of how a court can become more inclusive and accessible to those having business before it? Well, I don't know. You're in my wheelhouse. <laughs> I, guess, I mean, I, I just published an article in the International Association for Court Administration's Court Administrator on that topic <laughs> in the January, February edition and uh, made presentation at, at Macom uh, a year ago uh, in two summer conferences ago on the subject. I mean, pick an area of administrative operations and, 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 and you know, any of your core responsibilities and there are things you can do. Um, I mean, the one that just shines out, of course, is HR with recruitment and selection, development, training. Um, I mean, there's just a, 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 a just thing, example after example of, you know, we just talked a little bit about, you know, reaching out to communities that are underrepresented in your, the population of your, your court staffing you know, working and partnering with those outside organizations and reaching out to them. Uh, so depending on where you are, you know, here in, in New Mexico, we have a very high level of Hispanic Latino population. So in a, in, if you were a court administrator here, partner with, uh, you know, groups that represent the, that, that demographic. On the other hand, you know, New Mexico has a 3% population of African-Americans, not, not a big population here. Doesn't mean you ignore it. But, uh, but it, you know, and there are organizations like we have the NAACP or whatever, you reach out and partner with them. But, and then, you know, 10 to 15% of our population is Native American. So, you know, what are you doing to reach out to them and, and partnering? So and, and another one in recruitment is don't just use the same old, same old. You mentioned, you know, a newspaper ad. Well, sure, okay, put an ad in the Sunday paper, but that isn't going to cut it. Uh, not, in the, not in the age of the internet and... Uh, uh, and social media and such, you need to be reaching out through multiple uh, media to do this. You know, budgeting, I mentioned, you know, if you don't have the resources to do the hard thing about doing these things, go to your funding authority and make the case and get some money into a line item that's specifically dedicated to 
BEI efforts, uh, make it a prominent part of your budgeting process and not just hidden and squirreled away or, oh, we don't have money for that. You know, IT, what are you doing to reach out to, to make sure that your court is accessible in an online way? You know, are you using e-filing e and a portal? Uh, are you using ODR? Are you doing this, that, and the other? There's just all these different things that, that have come along in the last you know, decade or two that uh, courts should be, if they aren't already, should be looking hard at, at making sure that your court is doing these things. Uh, and then just internally, you know, what are you doing for your staff to make sure that your environment is equitable and inclusive for your staff? The most basic thing is you're holding a meeting. Are you making sure that everybody's point of view is being heard and that you're not just calling on the same people every single time if you're the chair of the meeting? That, you know, the person who is the introverted member of a minority group who is reticent to speak up, find ways to make sure that they're included in the discussion, that they're part of the team. There's just lots of examples from different areas that you can do to, to, to make your, and what you're doing you know, more diverse, more equitable, more inclusive. I guess the help desk also, you probably need to think about language access at the help desk, forms, all of that, your website, thinking broader, because some people are going to enter your courthouse. You just need to, to find ways to engage them to make it a more pleasant process. <laughs> this gets also into the issue of who the public sees and just the, the visual nature of the staffing in a courthouse, it can make a lot of difference in terms of credibility. As superficial as that may seem, that's the way humans work. And you know, if you don't see someone who looks like you and maybe talks a little bit like you, then you, you, you may be suspicious given that the rest of the history of your culture's experience has been negative because you're only dealing with old white guys that look like me. <laughs> I want to thank Carl Tonis, Don Palermo, Kent Pankey, Stacey Werby, and Norman Meyer for their views and ideas about diversity, equity, inclusion, and the courts. As we all continue to struggle with this urgent topic, it's conversations like this, as difficult as they might be, that can eventually lead to a shared understanding. As always, I want to thank you court professionals tuning in to today's conversation. You know better than anyone the struggles facing the courts over diversity, equity, and inclusion. Thank you for your hard work as we grapple to reach a shared awareness. Be sure to watch the NACOM Ethics webpage for the next Question of Ethics conversation. I'm Pete Kiefer, and thanks for tuning in today. Thanks for joining us today. A Question of Ethics conversation is a regular segment on ethics, courts, and court administration. Today's episode will be available on our website, on YouTube, Facebook, iTunes, LinkedIn, and on Twitter. Become part of the conversation. If you have questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes, email us. Our address is ethics at nakamnet.org. Did you hear an interesting comment by one of the panelists that you'd like to listen to again, but you don't want to search the entire episode to find it? The additional resources section on the web page contains a question time marker sheet. Just find the discussion question on the sheet, and next to it was the time that question was asked. You can then quickly fast forward to that time on the episode and listen to the panel's comments. Remember, if you don't have time to watch an episode, you can always listen to the audio version. Listen in your car or on the bus on your way to or from work. You never have to miss an episode. 
I'm Pete Kiefer, and on behalf of our guests, the Court Leader website, and the National Association for Court Management, thank you, and have a great day. The views, information, and opinions expressed during this episode are solely those of the host and the individual presenters. They do not necessarily represent the position of the National Association for Court Management.